Welcome to episode 59 of the Geek Rex Podcast. This episode features part two of our Comic-Con interviews. So last time we had all our good comics guests. This episode is full of awesome TV and movie people. So you're going to hear from a whole bunch of folks who worked on the newest DC animated original movie, Batman Assault on Arkham, the creators and voices behind Rick and Morty, as well as a bunch of folks involved with the new Constantine TV series. You can follow us on Twitter at geek underscore rex or like us on Facebook, or of course just go to our website at geekrex.com for all your geek-related news and media. Enjoy the show! In the first set of interviews, you're going to hear from a bunch of people who've worked on Batman Assault on Arkham, which is available now digitally. Um, you're going to hear from James Tucker, the producer, the legendary Kevin Conroy as the voice of Batman, Jay Oliva, the director, Andrea Romano, the voice director, Heath Corson, the writer, Troy Baker, who voices the Joker, and Matthew Gray Goobler, who voices the Riddler. Enjoy. Um, without any spoilers, can you tell us a little bit about the plot? Um, well, boy, there's a lot of... Plot. Always um, spoilers, we'll find that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've seen the trailer, you know it's primarily a Suicide Squad story. So again, we've, we've tricked the Wizards at Home video into letting us do a movie that's not really Batman or Justice League. Only they call it. So, anyway, it's a Batman movie, but it's really a, a Suicide Squad movie. And uh, the hero is, is Deadshot. So, um, and he is recruited with a bunch of other really nasty criminals by Amanda Waller. And I'm proud to say we have a very uh, blandly challenged Amanda Waller back to the original. Um, so, uh, voiced by CCH Pounder, as she did on Justice League for us. So, uh, so kind of base, back to basics with that. Um, and uh, they have to break into Arkham and madness ensues. So that's the rough, broad strokes. I, I think it's a... <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's really uh, action-packed. And there's a surprising amount of humor. Uh, dark humor, but... Um, I think it's a great ride. It's, it turned out uh, really well. How much fun was it uh, actually doing something that wasn't superhero esque? You didn't, you weren't focused on the Justice League or Teen Titans or anything like that. You actually have the villains. Uh, well, you know, dealing with villains is always more fun because uh, the outcome can be very surprising. You don't have, you know, when you're dealing with superhero stories. Certain things have to happen. You know, at the end, the superhero has to be triumphant. Uh, when you're dealing with villains, anything can happen. Uh, so I think the twists and turns that happen in the story are more surprising uh, than they would be on our traditional movies. So uh, and it's a lot of like it's a lot of fun to push characters to to corners that they wouldn't go if they were heroes. So you can show them being actually more human. Because they're not all good. They're definitely not all good. And they're not all bad, surprisingly. There's there's layers to them that aren't in a lot of the heroes. Um, or you're not allowed to go with heroes. Because they generally have to be doing the right thing. So. What led to the certain selection of this makeup the Suicide Squad? Um, well, because of the... The format of this has had to fit in after Arkham Origins, but before the first Arkham Asylum movie. And plus, there's characters that uh, the video game people had plans for. We kind of had to submit a list to make sure that 
our characterizations or our usages didn't conflict with what they had already established or were going to establish. So it's kind of tricky. Um, you know, they have plans for these characters too. That you know, evidently, I don't know. But uh, so anyway, they were so we were very specific about who we could and couldn't use. So um, so we submitted a list, and the, the ones that got included in the movie are the ones that that were free and clear, basically. And now they that doesn't mean they won't do stuff with them later. It's just we didn't have any conflicts. So. Would you say that this, um, that the plot you guys are going into the story is uh, mostly original, or is it pulling from a lot of different suicide stories and pulling them together? Um, I mean, it's it's mostly original. Of course, the, the basic construct of Amanda Waller pulling together a bunch of villains to do a job. Of course, that's the job. Um, but in the world of Arkham Asylum, I think it's original. I, well, it, it, definitely, we weren't basing it on anything. And what's called was that? So was it, was it, was it a good experience to sort of return to doing original stories as opposed to just adapting well, very my, popular, like, traits? You know, my goal when I took over uh, this division was to do as many original stories as possible. So it was great to be able to just craft a story from scratch within the parameters of the video game. I mean, we still had some boundaries, but they didn't tell us the story. We, we came up with our own story, uh, you know, between Warner Brothers Animation and DC. We worked on the story, and, uh, you know, the video game people just had to make sure that it didn't, you know, screw up anything they had planned. So, um, so yeah, it was very liberating, and, and as we go down the line, we'll be doing more. We'll be, like we used to do on the series, We sometimes in the series we pull elements from the comics, we do mini ad adaptations, but not strict adaptations, but we would include characters from from certain comic runs and stuff. So that's what we plan to do from now on, pretty much. Uh, or if we do adapt something, it'll be very loosely adapted. So uh, DC likes to say inspired by, as opposed to adapted, because adapted, the, the expectations mean, oh, I can look at this book and A, B it to the movie, and that's not what we're doing, so... So yeah, it's liberating not to, to to have to adapt some existing material. Um, working with the um, Arkham Asylum video game uh, environment, that comes with a certain sort of aesthetic or sensibility, right? What were your kind of key touch points that you had to, to be aware of? Well, you know, we wanted the feel, wanted the backgrounds to feel close to the video game as much as we could, since we're still doing it two D. We basically wanted it to feel like. Kind of like when they visualize the video games and drawings and paintings before they actually start building the CGI elements or whatever. We want we, we, we since we're not doing a CGI, we said, well, let's how let's try to at least mimic what the uh, development art looks like and what all that stuff. So we took our cues from that. And, uh, so as far as it's two, like I said, it's two D animation, but it feels like the Arkham world. Um, we took cues from the style, the color palette. Um, we made 2D designs from the 3D models. Um, so yeah, we, we definitely wanted it to be another story or have a connection to the video games. James is up. You can come in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
I wasn't making fun of you. I just went there. Isn't that funny? I must have heard you. You're, you're um, working on a movie set in the video game universe. How does it feel to be working with that aesthetic and that, and that kind of being back in that universe again? Being back in the game? The, the, no, the, uh, I mean, particularly the Arkham Asylum, um, the, where the games have been set. Um, I can't talk about the games at all. Did they tell you that? No, they didn't, but I said that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We can't talk about that because it's still an ongoing project. I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. You got another question? Uh, no. Someone else had a go. I've asked this question. Uh, Do you feel like your performance has evolved or changed over the years since you've been watching this character? You know, the challenge to me has been to keep it consistently truthful and fresh. Because the thing I've discovered about the Batman universe, the whole um, legacy, it involves the audience so much. The fans are so loyal. It's so huge that they actually know a lot more about the character than I do. They know they can go up and say, you know, in episode 341, when you said this to so-and-so, what were you meaning? And I think, I don't know what this person's talking about. They know so much more about it that if I hit a false note at any time, I'll be nabbed like that. So the challenge for me has been to keep it really honest and keep it really fresh. Um, and it's been it's been challenging over 23 years to do that, um, and I hope I've done it. <laughs> Being 75 years of Batman, what does it feel like to be part of Batman? Isn't that amazing? Right. To be a part of something like that and to be doing the role for so long. It's uh, it's it's you know as an actor, it's just a very lucky break to to stumble into something like that. But you know, you are every, you're sort of the culmination of everything you've been through in your life as an actor. You bring everything you are, and um, and with this role, when you're the voice, there's something very liberating about not being on camera. I can really, I find anyway, I can really let my imagination go wild, and I can be much more emotionally vulnerable because I'm not on camera. And um, I find I've done some of the most revealing work I've done uh, for Batman. I'm proud of You have been voicing Batman for like over two decades now, and you've got a lot of great action figures uh, of your versions of Batman from animated series, which they're just releasing DC collectibles, and Arkham, Asylum, uh, City at Night. What do you think of all your portrayals um, of Batman being made into action figures, and do you have among them? Someone sent me a fan who, who owns a toy company. A Kevin Conroy animated doll uh, figure 
playing Batman, but it's Kevin Conroy. Yeah. You take off the mask and he's got red hair in my face. <laughs> How awesome is that? And it said it has my bio on the back of the box. It was like a custom-made toy. <laughs> so I bought like a couple of dozen of them and I sent them out as Christmas presents. <laughs> Everyone at Warner Brothers got one. They loved it. I would love that. Isn't that wild? <laughs> that was wild. So, yeah, I've had a lot of fun with the toys. I think that could be definitely indicative of the impact your voice has made on the way a significant portion of Batman fans view this character. And I was wondering, like, what kind of, like, sort of sense of agency you feel, or, like, ownership even with the character. Because, you know, you, you've been that voice. People read Batman, they hear your voice. I know. That's, you know, a very personal experience for me, like, growing up with the... Well, the funny thing is, the funny thing is, in terms of that, is that I meet people now who grew up, and that's the only Batman voice they knew as a child. You're one of them. And they're adults, you know, and they come up to me at Comic-Cons and stuff and say, you are the character to me. When I read the comic books, I hear your voice. And that's such a trip to me because, to me, I'm a little older than you. So 23 years is just the span of the job, you know what I mean? But I meet people now where 23 years is the span of their life. And it's the only voice they know in terms of that character. So... That's a trip. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to me, I mean, to, to think that I've had that kind of influence on a character. But it, to put it in that kind of perspective, that time frame perspective, is amazing to me. Because it's been so long. Wouldn't that be great? I would love that. Yeah, we don't want the voice to age. No. <laughs> no, no, you can play the Dark Knight uh, Returns Batman. Well, I was doing old Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Batman Beyond. Yeah, Batman, that I was fun. That. I was doing an 80-year-old. He's got a cranky old. They need to make a Batman Beyond movie. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, we should do that. Well, hopefully you work with DC for many years because there's so many different comics. Yeah, I got the high sign for Gary a second. Gary, how long did you go? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. All right. Take care. Take care. Take care. Take care. Take care. Who wants to go first on this match? Yes, we're going that. Or whoever. I guess I'll go. Okay. Uh, so how's this feel to take an established video game universe? You've done so much great stuff in animation, like and, and make a story within that universe that now has a, a core of the games, like with that continuity. Uh, I mean, it's it's great because I'm a big fan of the. I'm a big gamer, so I played all the games and. And one of the things for me was just trying to capture the feel of playing the video games in the movie, but not hamstring the movie too much, because I didn't want it to seem like it's a it's an ad for the move for the video game, right? So what I try to do is try to you know hook up how the tone and, and look of Arkham Asylum looks. Actually, it looks actually different than the first game in the sense that it's actually clean because it's before the inmates had actually destroyed it all. And, and one of the things that I did kind of you know just in the fight choreography is I have little I have little subtle hints of the fight moves that you do when you play the video. Game. Game, actually, incorporated into the fight part of the 
So you'll see that as well as you know trying to see what they did with the uh, what they did in the Warner Brothers games and trying to hook up to that because we had to I had to work extensively with those guys and say, hey, I want to use these characters. Is that okay? And then they'll give me a list of saying who they like. I mean, who they uh, will allow us to use and who they're like. Oh, we have plans for this character. So uh, going back and forth was kind of fun doing that. Did you have to change your directing approach to fit our own world? Um, yeah, it's funny. Actually, when I got the script, uh, when I when I got the script from from Heath Corson, uh, the first thing that I, uh, that came to my head was like, if I if I direct this the way that we normally do, I don't think I'd enjoy it very much, uh, just because it's very different than what we normally do. So I, I pitched an idea to James Tucker. I, I asked James like, Hey, James, I have this idea for this script. Um, do you mind if I try directing this like a Guy Ritchie film, right? And he's like. Yeah, that sounds great. So he was very supportive of that because I wanted to make it because it's a heist film and I love Lockstock, Two Smoking Barrels and yeah. Snatch. Yeah. So that's why when I directed this, I mean, it's there, it's subtle. We didn't go as crazy as what Guy would do, but I wanted to get that feel in there, like very Ocean's Eleven, Steve Soderbergh kind of feel to the, to the heist film, you know, which we don't really get with these superhero films, you know? Well, the, you said superhero films. In the DC animated universe, usually you are within the wheelhouse of the superhero where the superhero has to come up. This is something different where the villains are there and the villains are the main Characters movie. How did that change anything that you do? Uh, actually, it's actually quite free because normally I have to follow the. Okay, what would Superman do here? Well, uh, Superman makes sure that you know the pedestrians are safe. You know, he's gonna do everything that Superman is, and same with Batman. You know, but with these villains, like they don't care about collateral damage. You know, they don't. For them, it's like I need to do the job, or else this this bomb in the back of my head's gonna explode because Waller doesn't like what I did. So it's kind of free and kind of fun and play with the fact. That you're playing with characters that really have very different morals than Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman, and then how they would approach certain situations is totally different. And just playing with that idea of, of what would these characters do in real life uh, based upon their backgrounds, you know. But still, like I try to do, like in the story, it's really about Deadshot's story. So I want to make sure he's very empathetic. Like his thing is like he's been on every Suicide Mission Squad. I mean, uh, and every mission uh, in the Suicide Squad, and uh, he kind of is kind of sick of it. He wants to get out of it, but he can't. But in this movie, he finds a way that there's actually an opening for him to get out of it, and that's where he tries to. Like all of them are all out, all of the all of the uh, Suicide Squad is all out to get. They all have their own agendas, and it's great trying to see like them all kind of collide and, and, and fight each other, you know, and then throwing Batman into the mix. So it, it seems that like most stories of this sort of approach start with like what about him start with the hero and sort of branch out to see how the villains react to him but this, this time it sounds like Batman is the foil of the story he's like the, re, like the reaction yeah. actually it's more of the long lines where Waller has her own agenda and it just so happens that Batman's investigations actually like not coincide but they actually uh, intersect at a certain point and it all it all uh, collides with Riddler he's like the, the linchpin like it's because of him that leads Batman's investigation to Arkham on the same night that, that Waller has set up the, this kind of heist in Arkham and it's because of that that Batman doesn't end up being the, 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 the kind of foil to their plan it, at some point they actually their agenda actually is almost coinciding because of the fact that uh, Joker is now released and, and, and now uh, in order for not everybody to, to die in the explosion they have to work together to kind of you know, live 
Uh, Joker, uh, it's obviously a lot of people's favorite. What's your favorite villain? Harley. Harley, yes. Uh, I actually did the character design for Harley. Uh, um, after reading the story, I knew it was a Deadshot story, but just like with Flashpoint with Thomas Wayne, there was something about Harley's story that I'm like, there's something here. And so I pushed her to the forefront. I tried to make sure that she got as much screen time as Deadshot, you know, and, and even like... Uh, any kind of promotional stuff, I'm always saying, like, Harley should be the one that we push, because I love that character. She's great. Was there anyone you wanted to use, but you couldn't? Uh, I mean, I wanted to use Killer Croc, but uh, Warner Brothers game said, like, oh, we have plans for him, so we can't use him. So I was like, okay, but we were able to use some of the other, like, uh, favorites, like Bane, uh, I think Scarecrow's in it, too. But just, like, uh, just a very, very short brief. But we have other characters that we will see. Are there future opportunities to do more stories in the uh, I wish. I mean, what's great about this is that we do uh, two movies a year based on the Me Too continuity, like Son of Batman, or, uh, and then we have an Elseworlds slot that we do, you know, any number of things. So uh, this one fell into that slot. So hopefully, you know, it'll free us to do different continuities. We can do Me Too, we can do more Arkham films. If it sells well, because remember, it's all, this is all based on whether or not this DVD sells well. But if it does well, it means that we can explore more avenues into the Arkham universe, which I'd love to do, because it gives us a little bit more freedom to, to not to just kind of stretch to do different storylines. Are you a fan of games as well? Oh yeah, I played the games extensively, I loved it so much, but it's hard to, with the amount of work that I do, it's hard sometimes to, to do it, because I literally have to go home, and then when everybody's asleep, I, I sneak in and I just have to play like four hours before I, I pass out, and that's the hard thing, because then i got to draw for another five hours, so that, that's where it's hard. Emma, you talked about Warner Brothers uh, in terms of making this maybe a DLC for uh, Batman Arkham Knight, yeah, like, yeah. incorporating like cross promotion. I think that'd be great. I mean, any. I mean, what's funny is that uh, while we were working on this, they released the DLC that had uh, Deathstroke in it, yeah. and that's I was like, oh man, that doesn't hook up with what we were doing, and so that's why I mentioned how I think that first time you seen the DLC was the first Suicide Squad that was with Deathstroke was in there, and I and I, and I from I believe that Deadshot was in that in that in that squad. Yeah. But as as each mission goes on, you know, uh, villains will start to die. But I think Deadshot was in every single one. But somewhere along the lines from the, the DLC to where ours starts, Deadshot, I mean, uh, Deathstroke escaped. Yeah. So I think that'd be kind of an interesting storyline for them to go back and yeah. try to, you know, that'd be, that'd be great. Play that. Yeah, I would love to play that too. <laughs> I always have fun with Deathstroke. He's yeah. one of my favorite characters. He's one of the best. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yes. Oh, this is the 75th anniversary of Batman yes. this year as well. Yes. Uh, what, is, what, is that, uh, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to someone who's working Batman? Oh, uh, it's, it's great. I mean, what's funny is that, you know, I, I, I was in line for the 89 Batman when I was a kid, you know, and, uh, you know, now that I work on all this stuff, it's like a dream come true and stuff. Uh, but it's actually, it's really cool because, I mean, I was I did the Superman 75 short that last year. So I was hoping I'd do one for this year, but then Bruce did his short, so it kind of filled up that slot. Uh, but it's kind of fun. I mean, I got to work on you know, Batman vs Superman with Zack, so I got to still do some Batman earlier this year. I'm uh, working, you know, I just did Arkham. I've got a bunch of, I have another Batman film I'll be doing next, so Batman's just fun. I just love the fact that it's a celebration of Batman. And hopefully they'll ask me to do one for the 100th anniversary, because I got, I got great ideas to do the 100th anniversary, <laughs> if I'm still around. <laughs> yeah, no, knock on wood. What else? You're doing another Batman movie, can you do any hit? 
Uh, Gary's going to announce it, I believe, today, most likely. So it's, we always announce our next slate, and I did I did the next Batman. So, yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. I got to say that it's, it's everybody asks me what my favorite film is. It's always the one that I'm currently working on. So this one, I think, is probably the best one I've done so far. So it's really good. I can't tell you, but until Gary announces it, but it's pretty badass. Could it be called Batman uh, Saves the Young Justice? <laughs> I wish, but, I know. you know, uh, someday. Maybe we'll do a Young Justice directed video or something. I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, like, all uh, our fans love. Uh, Young Justice, yeah. Justice. We missed it. I can't wait for the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why, like, because I, Phil Barossa does most of our designs. He didn't yeah. do this movie, but he does all of our, like, uh, Son of Batman, Justin War and stuff. So we always talk about you know, the Young Justice days, and uh, we always talk about, like, yeah. when we'd ever do, like, a directed video and stuff. But what would we change? I mean, that's why I put Calder into yeah, uh, Flashpoint. Because I was, I was trying to populate the, the boat with people, and I was just like, you know, let's put Aquaman in there, Aquaman in there, and, and, and Garth, and yeah, that was awesome. So that was fun. That was, that was me I love when you get Young Justice characters. Oh, yeah. Sneak them in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For the best. <laughs> That's cool. Anybody else? Do you have a dream DC film that year? Uh, I would love to do Gotham by Gaslight. That's one of the I ones I just, yeah. I'd love to do. I mean, everybody says Kingdom Come, but like... That would be only if, like, if, D- if Warner Bros. opened up a theatrical and, and we had like five years of development and stuff. Because, I mean, the only way you could do it is if it was CG, but CG where it looked like Alex's Ross's like watercolor painting and stuff. Uh, but that's a lot. I mean, yeah, I remember we make these films, like we do three a year, and we do it like three months, four months, and then we go on to something else. So to do something like, like Kingdom Come and do it justice, we would need to have a theatrical division that would that would tackle that. But I'd love to do that. Um, let's see. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths would be kind of fun. I don't know how we could do it in one movie, probably like two movies. Uh, there's lots of stuff that I'd love to do. So Any particular ones you guys like? Oh, uh, yeah, Killing Joke would be good. That would be good, too. First, I'd love to see the, the full um, adaptation of All Star. Because the, the oh, movie yeah, yeah, was yeah, really yeah. good. Yeah. There was like some of the weird oh, yeah, we bits. I love the corny bits. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the heart and blood of it, in my opinion. Oh, well, you know, they might do it. Well, luckily, Dark Knight Returns 1 and 2 sold really well. Yeah. So we might end up exploring more of the two parters. You know, and it sold well. If it didn't sell well, then you know what? No more two parters. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see an anime go to Judgment Hall Cup with Batman vs. Brave. That would be very, very cool. I don't know how we'd get the rights for that, no, but no, that would no, be no. awesome. I'm a, I'm a huge Judge Dredd fan too, so I love it. It's so good. Like is mine. Like is mine. Although I think we have to do that in two parter. Yeah, it's a huge story. Yeah, but I've been a Green Lantern fan forever, so that would be. That would be for perfect. me. That would just be the epitome yeah. of walking. Especially after the movie wasn't that great. Uh, yeah. I needed. I need something else. <laughs> uh, and then they canceled the animated series too. I know. I know. But yeah, hopefully we'll get to that. I mean, I want to do more, like, Green Lantern-centric stories would be kind of fun. I mean, we tend to do that with our Justice League stuff. Like, when we do a Justice League film, it's always centric with a particular character. So I like to do that. That's what I like with Young Justice, actually. At one point or another, all, all the Green Lanterns appear, yeah. which made me happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, was, I love Young Justice, so I was watching that. Like, I, was, I was watching it, like, two nights ago. Like, just yeah, yeah. Kind of streaming it on Netflix while I was packing. I think, like, if we had done Young Justice, kind of, like, 
the Netflix thing where we just make it as packages and then you just watch it, I think it probably would have done a lot better yeah. than just airing every week and you know how. Yeah, if not separating it by Yeah. There you go. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Start over there. I didn't go there. I started there. Okay. Over here. It's so awesome. Hi, you guys. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you too. Thank you. Nice night show. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Hello. What's up? <laughs> it's good. It's good. I love being here. I really do. It's it's the energy is so contagious. You can't help. It's exhausting. But everybody here, you know, I'm sure you guys have been experiencing it too. People bump into you because it's so crowded. They always apologize. Everybody here is so nice, and everybody's here for the same reason, which is to have a good time. So. Thank you guys for being here. And it feels very accepting, safe environment for lots of people to celebrate their own thing and uh, very generous. It's yeah. very generous. It really is. So what can I tell you? What do you How want to know about? How does it feel to be back with, uh, back with Kevin? It's a joy every single time. And I'll tell you, when you watch the film, if you are like me, you're hearing whatever's going on, and then you hear Kevin's voice, and it's kind of like... <laughs> oh, that's, it's the touchstone. It's like, yeah, I know what that is now. I know what this world is. It's got Kevin's Batman. And so I always... Whenever I'm offered these jobs, because I'm a freelance director, I, I the first question I ask is, Kevin, who's Kevin Conlon? <laughs> and sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say no. And I'm always so grateful when they say yes. It, of course, made sense in this project because he's in the game, so he's affiliated, so it made sense to have that continuity. Because you were the one who originally cast him. I did. So how does it feel to like be almost <laughs> responsible for this pillar of Batman? Yes. This individual who has to like, if you don't mind that, so I'm so glad I got it right. Wouldn't it have been horrible if I screwed up in that beginning? It would have been just dreadful. We probably would be talking about it, right? But it was a very long, arduous casting experience from the beginning. I, I heard over 500 auditions. I called back 120 to 150 actors and then narrowed it down. And, and Kevin wasn't in that first group, he didn't audition yet. And Bruce, Tim, and I said, well, we think we have it. We think these four guys could probably do it. And then I talked to an on-camera casting director, friend of mine, said, do you know anybody with a really good voice? And they said, oh, you should try Kevin Conroy. Reached out to him, brought him in. He opened his mouth. And Bruce, Tim, and I went, <laughs> done. We found it. It's done. And so from that moment on, it's, it's always a relief when it's Kevin Conroy. It makes my job easier. Kevin mentioned one of the challenges was staying consistent over all these years with the voice. Is that a challenge for you? Sure. And if you listen to the first episodes of Batman the Animated Series, it doesn't sound the same as he sounds now. We were still figuring out what that series was. It was still a little cartoony early on. At that point, too, we were distinguishing between Batman and Bruce Wayne's voice. There's a slight difference between the two. Now we pretty much keep it consistent. But, um, yeah, he, it's, 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 it's a constantly evolving and we don't always want to keep doing the exact same thing so you know Batman has always played a little bit differently in each 
thing that we do, a project that we do. It's a game or, you know, I think about his work on the game, and I didn't direct the game, but video game directing, and I don't do a lot of games because it is mind-numbing. How many lines have to be recorded, how many oops, how many ups, how many strains, how many screens, how many sounds. And, um, and, and he's been talking about how weeks and weeks and weeks of recording for the games. I prefer this kind of, this is pretty much a six-week recording window to get all the actors recorded on the initial record before we ship. Then it ships to Asia, wherever we're animating, it comes back, and then we have another three, four weeks to get the ADR done. But video games, I do all the Blizzard stuff, the uh, Diablo and StarCraft and World of Warcraft, and I'm just doing, we announced it last night so I can finally talk about it, we're doing a Firefly game with all the original cast. And so I, I know them all over the years because I was such a huge fan of the show that over the years I've cast them as various characters. So I could actually reach out to them directly. It wasn't very hard to get there, yes. You know, <laughs> you want to come back and play Noggin? Sure, and if hell's yes. <laughs> so, um, I, and those are the only video games that I do because they're, they're, it's not that they're boring, they're uh, stressful on the actors' voices, and they're repetitive. Every character has to do all the same throwing sounds, punching sounds, getting punched, running. It's just over and over and over. It's not very dramatic. I like acting. That certainly is voice acting, but it's not acting. Yeah. An oof as opposed to a few. You have an asked a question, have you guys? No. Do you have a question? Yeah. Everybody's asking questions. Uh, I have another one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a deep level of voice acting. So seeing yeah. you is just something. Good to love them. I love actors so much. <laughs> I do. Um, you said there's a nebulous figure in the, in the, like, in the voice acting world, like, community in Hollywood. Everyone who should be voice acting should have worked with you at some point or should know who you are. And hopefully they know you know who they are. Um, as you did back in the day, find Kevin. Do you know, do you have like your eye on any like voice actors who you are expecting great things from? Not necessarily the DC world, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, there's been many actors, and I'm not trying to blow my own horn, but there's been many actors for whom I've started their careers. And, and I've had to fight for them. For example, when we were doing Teen Titans, they were not convinced that Greg Sipes was the right beast boy. And I said, absolutely, I'm telling you, he's, he's brand new, he's not done this before, he's, he's really not an established voiceover actor. I said, I'm telling you, he is beast boy. We, I, I have a gut feeling this is the guy. And every once in a while I'm wrong. It happens, but I have a good ear for it. It's why I have a certain amount of success in this business. But, and there's a couple of them that I've really literally started their careers because I've found them, meaning just I've auditioned and found them. And they said, this person deserves to have a successful career in this field. And so I try to help them. And, and then when I, and we, we're very, a very generous community, the voiceover community, and the casting directors. And so when I find someone like Greg Sipes, I will call up other casting directors and say, I found a great young voice actor. He's not that young an actor, but he sounds really young. So when you, or a Hinden Walsh. When you need someone to sound like a 13-year-old girl, but you cannot hire a youth, you must hire an adult, go to Hinden. She can do it for you. She's just got that ability. And so we're very sharing that way and letting people know about Here's a special person. Thanks, you guys. Thank you so much. Good to see you all. A lot of fun. It's it's a little bit of a 
challenge because we had to track timeline-wise where everybody was, um, ending in Origins and then beginning in uh, Asylum. Yes. And then we sort of had to get all those moving pieces together and make sure that we were doing it all justice. Right. Also, in the Arkhamverse, you're dealing with some very grounded people. Yeah. We don't have a lot of superpowers in the Arkhamverse. So even though we're dealing with the Suicide Squad, we can't put anybody who's wildly powerful. I think the only person we have is Killer Frost, who actually has powers in this world. So even somebody like King Shark, we had to ground. We had to give him a reason for being this kind of guy. Uh, so yeah, but it's incredibly exciting to be able to play in this world. I'm a big fan of the game, I'm a big fan of Batman, I'm a big fan of Suicide Squad. So it was super fun. I can't wait for the movie tonight. Has anybody seen the movie? No, no, the it's trailer. awesome, guys. It's so fun. Just lay it out. It's amazing. Okay, here we go. We open. We open on Gotham City. Oh no. So from the previous interview, we sort of got a hint that well, not really a hint, um, an impression that. We're still returning to more classic like classic aspects of the animated series. Like, you know, the original design of Amanda Waller, getting Kevin's voice back in. Look, Amanda Waller has gained a lot of weight. She's <laughs> under a lot of stress from when she showed up. And even though it's a couple years, she's been doing some heavy-duty stress eating. But more along the lines of, like, has it been really fun to sort of, even though it's in the game universe, to leap back into the aesthetic and aspects of the original animated Well, you know, I think that the, the, the games have always tipped a hat to the uh, the Batman the Animated Series, yes. down to having Kevin and having Paul Dini write uh, uh, City and, and Arkham. So I think that there is always, it feels like we're carrying on that rich tradition, and this feels like the kind of story that could take place in the Batman the Animated Series. Uh, so I wanted to be able to, to do Suicide Squad in that world. Yeah. He actually called Suicide Squad, too. <laughs> we do call them to a Suicide Squad, yeah. Well, Waller calls them the Suicide Squad because she hates them. Yeah. And is just sort of like, we'll call them con. Well, she calls them convicts. She calls them task force. She says, yeah, assemble task force X. Yeah. But then after that, she, they call her their own personal Suicide Squad. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you can see that in the episode. Yeah. yeah. How much input did Rocksteady have on the script? Uh, Rocksteady gave me notes on the script, so they wanted to make sure there were things that they would say, listen, in our world, the thing that you're saying is this, is actually this. And I was like, okay, cool. I also wanted to make sure that you would see a bunch of the locations that you played through in the game. Uh, so I set stuff that you had played through. I also was like, hey, how come we've never seen the property room at Arkham? Like, you lock up all these guys, and they have all this stuff, and you take all of their equipment, and you put it somewhere. Why haven't we seen that room? And what happens when a bunch of other villains comes in and starts using the other villains' weapons? So you're actually going to see the Suicide Squad utilizing some other weapons of the other villains. So there's a lot of uh, Easter eggs in there. Yeah. It sounds like it's good that you guys are approaching... There's a lot of fun. It's a con movie. Like, it's a heist movie. So it's very uh, Quentin Tarantino. It's very uh, Guy Ritchie inspired. There's a lot of con aspects, and it pivots quite a bit because you've got all these guys bopping up against each other. They are not teams. They don't like each other. And they're just sort of thrown together, and they're bad guys. And bad guys don't have a whole lot of infrastructure control. 
if they hate you, they're going to hit you in the face. If they want to stab you, they're going to try to stab you. So you're going to see a lot of people will get on each other's nerves. Any favorite uh, members of the Suicide Squad for you? Uh, I needed to have Deadshot, Captain Boomerang, and uh, Harley. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I really, I mean, we're, we're in a unique position with Harley in that she has broken up with the Joker. She is, uh, we, I sort of played her as if, like, she's out of college. She's sort of going to make some new friends. She's broken up with the old boyfriend. She's out to make some bad decisions. And she does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mr. Yeah, that's right. And so it's it's sort of her trying out what she wants to be after. You know, what's going to happen without the joke? And who am I now? Thank you so much, guys. Great question. Great question. Thank you to the director. I have to ask. I think Four minutes Okay. Oh, it's great to see you again. You too, man. How you doing? Thanks, man. How high are you? Where did you get to ask questions because you didn't get to ask I think you have to approach it the same way. And, you know, when you're doing a game, you've got hours upon hours upon hours to tell that story. Whenever you do, you know, a film, you've got, in our case, like 120 minutes. Um, or if you're doing a show, you've got 22 minutes. So everything is telling little small stories. Um, so it's more like the process that you get that information through. Um, we really kind of focused this within like three or four cities. Um, so it was, let's get through the content. But the cool thing is, is that when, you know, the, the, the temptation for that is to go, well, hang on, let's really take some time with this. But when you're sitting across the glass from Andrea Romano, who's been doing that job for over 20 years, you're good. <laughs> you know? Just shut up and listen, because there's such a rich history and experience there. That was one of the best things. I mean, I remember growing up as a kid, all I wanted to do was work with Andrea Romano. So to be able to sit in the booth as, you know, on Batman, as the Joker, I'm done, man. I am hanging it up. That's, that's the best thing for me, especially to be able to be with my Batman. Have a look. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, okay. So, um, you have voiced now several different uh, Batman characters. Yeah. Uh, Chief Case, now the Joker, which is definitely proving yourself in the last thing. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. You're the highlight. Um, what, uh, and we got now plenty of actors here, so what, whether it's uh, Chief Case, Joker, who's uh, your favorite look of mine of that character? Do you have voice, play-wise, uh, or just aesthetically in the game movies? Aesthetically, to me, you know, it's always like, who's your favorite? It's like, you don't want to say a favorite, but I, I definitely would say aesthetically, I think the Joker is the most compelling. I love the way he looks in the Arkham Origins. Yeah. I love the way he looks yeah. uh, in, in, in Assault on Arkham. There's almost, it, it's like this cool little uh, combination between uh, like the animated series, yeah. that, that typical style, and then also like almost an anime style. Um, the action is specifically very like anime. Um, so I really gotta say, I mean, it's, it's such an interesting character to just look at. There's so much that 
of the story and the character is told just by looking at the guy. Like, you'll see when you watch the movie, the first time you see it, it's just one long shot, you're like, that's a creepy guy, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Just by looking, there's not a lot of characters that can impose such persona simply just by looking. Well, thank you. Uh, you had a question. Yeah, um, I was just going to ask if it was real to play against a Batman you grew up watching. Uh, if I thought about it too hard, then I would have probably my mind would have exploded. Uh, yeah, I mean that's 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 my Batman, you know. And but it's so funny because every time, and like talking to Kevin, he's just very pleasant. But as soon as he steps on that mic and you hear that Batman come through, that's a different person. It's a really different person. Um, and again, it's just written so well. Guys, you guys know. Come on. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's that's probably gonna be the best thing about this is that working with my Batman and my favorite. Like, <laughs> thank you guys. Rabbit fire. You too, man. How's the experience? It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I grew up with an incredible soft spot for villains for whatever reason. I think we all do, right? They're the most interesting character in anything. They're the most fun, and uh, I love Batman. So to get to play the Riddler is just a dream come true. Absolutely. I know, and I'm really can't wait to see the movie tonight. It's really good, man. I'm biased, clearly, but it's a masterpiece. Oh. <laughs> well, good. I, I will hold you down the back of the Blu-ray. Uh, Say, Matthew Begubler says it's a masterpiece. Who was your favorite villain growing up? My favorite villain growing up was the Joker, followed closely by... That's a great question. Gargamel, maybe? Oh, yeah. I'm taking, I mean, I'm going deep in the villain <laughs> Gargamel. I loved Greedo. I, yes. I, I remember I had an imaginary friend as a kid, and it was Greedo from, from Star Wars. I don't know why. But, um, I hate Star Wars. For a minute there, I got really depressed. I was like, who the hell is this lady? I love you. Great, great shirt. I love Star Wars. I love your Star Wars shirt. Um, and then the, I would say the Joker, the Riddler, and the Penguin. We were talking about comic books. Do you have any riddles for us? <laughs> Riddle me this. Um, uh, my riddle for you is to give me a riddle. <laughs> How do you like that? That was a good term. What's black and white and red all over? A newspaper. Oh, oh you got it. You can't trick the riddle. Really, really you can't, yeah, I really am the riddle. <laughs> That's a pun. <laughs> Is there a character in Batman that you want to voice next? The Riddler again. I love it. I felt really comfortable in his shoes, and um, I love it. I mean, I, I love it. I love playing it. To, to create the Riddler, did you draw on any of the um, the other people who played the Riddler? He's been played by some crack. He's been played by some phenomenal actors, and I'm so lucky to be in their trajectory. I, uh, I I'm familiar with them having always watched Batman, whether it's the Adam West show or the. The Tim Burton movies or the Christopher Nolan movies, but I didn't really refer to any of that. I was more towards uh, P.T. Barnum and sort of showman from the turn of the century. And my hope was to create a more uh, oddly a more extroverted ruler, while at the same time being internally actually crippled by the fear of not getting answers to his own questions. So a little more obsessive, compulsive. If anything, I would say Larry David in the form of the Riddler is the odd thing. Larry David and P.T. Barnum. What are you most excited for fantasy um, The ending's pretty phenomenal. I would say that. Um, yeah. That's it. That was a lame answer. Sorry. I'm not completely ending. Just give us a little spoiler. Yeah, I know. I just ruined exactly it. The ending is 
It's a real ending. It, it fades to black, and there's some credits. Oh, except for the credits. Yeah. That makes sense for the ending. It's just a panel style. Yeah. It's like, it's your name, and it fades, and it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Just a question mark. There you go. This exactly. The end. Right. The end. Theme? Do you think as well? I've not played the Arkham game, uh, or games, plural. I'm sure I would love them. I, my problem is I love video games so much that I had to cut myself off around the time I got to college because I was like, I'm spending 11 hours playing a video game and I should be editing movies or doing something a little more with other people. So I, I sadly had to quit One day I'll go down that dark path again. You can be my only or you can start directing video games. I like that. That's amazing. How fun that would be, right? You just solved you just solved the question. The riddle. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. You're a riddle S. Is that a riddler or a riddle S? A riddle S? Hey, riddle S. Does that work? A female riddler or a riddle S? Yeah, I mean, there's no man in riddle S. Like, it'd be gender neutral, really. Sorry, say it again? Riddle S kind of gender neutral, I think. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Guys, thank you for Next up, we've got Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland, the creators of Rick and Morty. You guys love the parody stuff, and that's like one of the, my favorite parts of the show, is the parody stuff from Back to the Future from Jurassic Park to Zardoz. Is there a story that you guys are like dying to do for season two or season three, just down the line? Like stories you love and that you really want to see get the Rick and that Morty? That stuff kind of creeps in in a weird yeah. way. It's not, it's not, um, like we just realized recently on one that we were kind of evoking aliens, yeah, um, but yeah. it wasn't really... It, was, it, it never starts as like, we got to do an Aliens episode. Yeah. It's like, what yeah. the fuck? It just but gets up there. It like, just, yeah. it just, all of a sudden we realize, oh, there's, there's like Overturn. commandos with futuristic weapons and there's monsters that they're hunting, but they're being hunted and they're in a sci-fi environment. Like, oh, this yeah. is kind of turning into Aliens, so let's, let's, let's capitalize on the things we learned from Aliens about what's cool and what we like to see. And then let's also, though, let's, let's find a new take on Aliens. Like, yeah. Let's not make the environment dark and flickering. And let's make it kind of beautiful and luxurious. <laughs> um, yeah. So, it, it, I, to tell you the truth, the first season, I felt like when we actually went so far in the direction of referencing pop culture yeah, and homaging like it, that we, yeah. we, because it's an animated show, we very quickly end up in a competition with South Park that we're yeah. never going to win. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's when we talk about political satire, when we, when we, when we get, when, if I start going on a tirade about how society is run, and let's let's reflect that this way or that way, and or when we go like, oh, let's let's do like this, you know, we'll have then we'll have Freddy Krueger come in. It's like we're we're, it, it, we're we're five minutes from finding out that South Park did it. Yeah. Or <laughs> or we're five, South Park's five minutes from doing it. And and, yeah, and we, yeah. we won't air until a year Dude, after. That episode too, we 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 we, sh- we flipped the fuck out. Like we were way too far along in production on on that uh, lawnmower dog episode to do to do anything about it. We were locked in. I mean, we were like we shipped it. It was being animated, and then Mike McMahon was like, uh. I wasn't sure if I, when I should bring this up. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I want to take a look at the South Park Inception that. episode. Dude, I was like, Freddy my heart shattered. Out. We watched it. And it was like we're, we're. I think we're okay because we have the A story that's so not what they did. And but we're it's doing a different thing. But still, I mean, it, it was just like yeah. And then in season one, we had several moments of like a day spent breaking a story, and then again, Mike McMahon. Um, I, I South Park. 
part has an episode. Which I would rather hear earlier than later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the funniest thing about it is that we can't even embrace the frustration of that with a story about how South Park does everything yeah, before us because yeah. South Park did yeah. that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, we, and, and, you know, to be clear, like, we're big admirers of the, those guys, you know, Trey and Matt. Like, they're fucking brilliant. Uh, but they're too fast. They're too and, goddamn uh, fast and they're fucking, yeah. You don't want to, you want to, so we find that if we stick to sci-fi yeah. and, and, and character, um, uh, then we won't, we won't overlap and find out that South Park did it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it seems to me that, uh, for good reason, obviously there's the fact that the future is woven into the makeup of the story. Have you ever considered how similar to a really fucked up Doctor Who it is as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we reference Doctor Who a lot. Um, I'm not the I'm not as big a Doctor Who fan as um, maybe some of the other writers, and especially my uh, sometime writing partner Rob Schraub, who's like seen every Doctor Who from from obsessed. when it was a radio show to whatever. Um, the but I the nature of Doctor Who and and uh, and the fact that the nature of its nature is probably not unrelated to its success, its enduring ability to fa- satisfy people, its combination of character and macro story and micro story, like the idea that you like to see the Doctor with different companions, you like the idea that the Doctor who is the protagonist is the most mysterious character we we aspire to be him but we don't relate to him um, we relate instead to the companions who are asking questions that we want to ask the doctor what are you doing why, why did you do that what are you thinking how do these aliens work and then the doctor has this crazy British response that's kind of like and and so for, and I recognize the relationship between that and uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that Arthur Dent was always asking Ford Prefect the same questions what, what do you mean why is this happening and it almost seems like a British thing like Roald Dahl uh, stories will have like a character that's like you silly child don't you understand the, 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 and then say something crazy that you have to adapt to as a reader um, so and I, we, we reference that stuff all the time and definitely aspire to not rip them off but create the same feeling yeah it's a great template I mean you know like you know you have Rick as the doctor Morty's the companion asking the questions and I just love that we've, we've, we've done stuff where my favorite even going now, like season two, I, 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 I kept saying, like, I really want a Morty-driven story. Like, I want to have a story where Morty, like we did with, um, uh, I don't know what it was called. The Castle of Ricks? No, the, the, the one, um, the Love Potion one, or the Love Pandemic one. Uh-huh. I don't know the name of it, but I just love how Morty comes in and puts his right. foot down to Rick. He's like, no, you're going to fucking do this for me. I always love that. I like the, the companion telling you know, the guy that knows everything, you're going to use your science to help me. And it's like, all right, I'll do it. But it's so Which great. Which because... to My Favorite Martian. Uh, yeah, yeah, A little bit yeah, of Mark yeah, and Mindy. That's true, that's true. Uh, yeah, 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 the alien character that you go to and you go, like, can you help me get a promotion? Can you He's turn like, me invisible for an episode? I, I shouldn't do that. It's uh, a bad idea. You're, gonna, you're, you're not going to like it. it. Yeah, you, yeah. Think, you think the things that are keeping you from being fulfilled and successful um, are, are sci-fi related. You think that if you get a better Palm Pilot, a better car, a better girlfriend, uh, you are going to somehow magically become satisfied. Um, but you, that's just, you, you know, it's not true. Yeah, start listening to Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now if you want to get fucking satisfied. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm doing a story on the funniest comedians at Comic-Con telling the dirtiest joke they know. Do you have a favorite dirty joke? Yeah, uh, uh, a, 
butthole and a penis uh, walk into walk a bar. Into a, for, no, not a bar. <laughs> they, they walk, walk into, into a, a vagina, vagina. <laughs> and then they just start fucking and shitting everywhere. And half of their babies out. are buttholes and half of them are penis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's a, then a fucking a abortion happens and like the shit runs in and starts killing people. Everything's bleeding and, and all of it is and infected then, and with then, every and disease you've ever heard. And then somebody gets fucking, like, I'm not even going to say it, if somebody gets, you know what, and it's fucking horrible. And then, uh, yeah, and where's the punchline? The, the, the humanity's the punchline. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that we're all going to die someday, that's the fucking punchline. <laughs> that's Thank you guys so much. Next up are Rick and Morty voice actors Chris Parnell and Spencer Grammer. Well, you're both very recognizable <laughs> in your own right, but especially yeah. when you're coming for an animated thing, is it kind of a different feel? Do your fans still find you, or when they only hear your voice, is it... I, I don't know. I haven't really watched around the, I, my I have some friends who do cosplay stuff, so they're they're like at some balls or something going on right now. Yeah. Some friends. Yeah. <laughs> the masquerade balls. Some so I just I just worked with on this thing, um, and they're like, you should just dress up like your character from Rick and Morty. <laughs> like you just dress up like Summer, and I was like, that would just be so strange. <laughs> be a great look. I feel strange like girl. no no you know like I have a ponytail and a pink t shirt and yeah. white jeans. Is that yeah, what she wears? Like that. <laughs> <laughs> You watch the show. I watch yes. the show. You know, um, and then I would just be talking like Summer as well. <laughs> be so, be so amazing. Guaranteed, there's someone in there. Somebody's probably Cosplay, dressed like yeah. Summer. You yeah. think so? Yeah. 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 Oh, guaranteed. I saw. Yeah. I gotta go find them. I saw a girl who's dressed as Rick with a Morty backpack. Oh, uh, that's hilarious. Yeah. That's awesome. Her hair was like blue though, and, and like huh. in, in real life, it just looks like some kind of anime thing. Yeah. yeah, it, doesn't yeah, really, yeah, yeah. it doesn't translate to real life that well. Yeah, but yeah it's it was kind still, of hard to translate. But it was recognizable. That's awesome. So are you guys already in production right now for the second season? Yeah, we're right in the middle. Do you have any favorite moments you can tell us about or anything you're excited for? Um, I like this. There's this one episode where they're... I can't say too much about it, but... Uh, we it's think hard things, to understand anyway. Yeah, we think, <laughs> we think, think things are real that are happening, that are, yeah, there's but a, they're not. But they're very confusing. But it, they're just crazy what the characters that are involved mm-hmm. and that keep popping up is... It's just nuts, but it's yeah. It's it's like a, a re- recount. Uh, it's a lot of memories that come up, and like family memories and stuff. So there's a lot of like family bonding. It's a big. It's a big family episode. It's fun. It is. And so in the show, you guys will push the envelope of stuff like I don't know, maybe some viewers like taste levels, you know, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So is it like are the things that come up where you're all, like you're almost uncomfortable about it? Like how comfortable, for example, are you with like incest? Has <laughs> that come up? As a, as it's a, come up in the show, like uh, with Summer. As a concept, in, as a as Spencer Grammer, <laughs> as a concept as Summer. I mean, I mean, you know, in the show, when someone the goes, show, here's the some... script for the thing. Here's, there's going to be a sex scene with you and Morty, and then uh, making up. Yeah, it's just like it's, it's Wednesday. Here yeah, we go. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, you. I think the longer you're, I mean, yeah, actors, uh, yeah, crazy. You have to do it. Um, I think yeah, as you as you go along in acting in general, you become less and less judgmental of everything and mm-hmm. everyone, because um, we're not necessarily here to comment on what people do. I mean, you can obviously, but you're here to like play characters well, and put you, yourself in those situations. But I think it's okay for you to come on. So you support incest? <laughs> you actually, champion no, the I cause. Don't I have the incest website. Uh, if you want to read more about why people get into incest, I, I'm doing this whole thing with yeah. You've got a right? humanity. Surprisingly, <laughs> that transitions well into my yeah, next question. Yeah. Oh, right. wow. um, I'm doing a, really a story on. 
the funniest comedians at Comic Con telling uh -huh. the dirtiest jokes they know. Okay. Do you have a favorite dirty joke you can share with us? An incest joke? It doesn't. It's not incest specific. Expertise is really on the incest. So I can't really go any favorite dirty joke you've heard. Um, my dad has a couple of dirty jokes that I know. Oh, you know, <laughs> your dad. It's an incest joke, actually. So well, let's hear it. Um, no, I don't. It's not very good. Just long. hit us with whatever you got. I mean, I know like bad, like you know, dead baby jokes. And oh, stuff okay. like that. I'll take a dead baby. <laughs> he really was hated that. That's not my dad. That's me. Joke. That's me. It's not my dad's joke. <laughs> Okay. Come on. Um, all right, so what's what's funnier than a dead baby? What? A dead baby in a clown suit. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. And can you top Do you that? Have one? I have zero jokes in my head. I, I really don't know any jokes. I really don't. I don't tell jokes. I don't remember jokes. I don't learn jokes. You don't like jokes? I'm not a big joke guy. I'm a joke guy. It's so funny because you're so funny. Chris like, Barnett, you do, you, the most you're like on SNL, the non-joke guy. You know jokes. You just play the straight man. I am an actor. <laughs> right. I'm not a jokester. I take that seriously. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you guys so Thank much. You. Next, we got a chance to talk with comic book writer and novelist Joe Hill about the upcoming film Horns, based on his novel. Well, uh, so let's let's talk from the beginning of Horns here. When did you first have the imagery of Ig with those devil horns sticking out of his head. I don't know. That's a tough one. Yeah. I know, you know, you get asked this, like, what, how did you come to this idea? And um, I almost never have a good answer for that question. You know, um, I tell myself stories when I can't get to bed. You sure. know, I think, up, I think up weird concepts and stuff, and, uh, you know, and... And I'll ride an interesting concept for a few nights, you know, drift off to sleep to it. But sometimes you'll get a concept that will stick around for a long time. And I think that Horns was a little bit like that, that it was a story where, um, you know, I could imagine his different confrontations. I think it started with, I've had this idea, and it actually goes back before Horns. I've written several books that, before Horns, I wrote two other novels um, which were never published both of which explore similar concepts, this idea of, of having a power to know people's darkest secrets. Um, and um, I think I found that concept really interesting, and I kept playing with it and trying to find a way to make it work, and, and I didn't really discover a way to make it work until I had the idea of what would it be like to be the devil, you know, to, to have his powers, um, to know, you know, everyone's secret temptations. Um, and that was just a variation on this idea of what would it be like to know about the worst and the people you love, you know? What, could you still love them um, if you knew their darkest secrets and their darkest impulses? And the book was really an exploration of that. I think, I think by the end I kind of decided that you could, you know, that a good person, a decent person could still face the worst and the people around him and still care about them. Do you think that finding out those secrets about your family members and your friends is what makes it a horror story? Or do you think it's more of a mixture? Cause you go on Wikipedia and you see it's a horror story. It's dark fantasy. And yeah. sometimes it's a blend of both. And how, how do you define it? Um, I think it's a tragic horror, a, a tragic comma horror Okay. <laughs> you know, um, you know, it's a love story. It's a story about tragic first love. Um, and, and at its core, you know, it has scary parts. 
Um, it has, you know, um, horrifying supernatural set pieces and, um, you know, some brutal, some moments of brutal combat. But um, at its base, it's, it's about losing young love, you know, what it's like to be so passionately in love with someone and have them love you back and have it be sort of innocent and clean and pure and and then and then that's slipping away um and i think that's you know that's an experience a lot of people have had and find themselves returning to and it was something i thought that would make you know would be worthy to explore in a novel Speaking of that devil imagery, um, and hopefully this isn't too personal a question, yeah. how much of your spiritual beliefs kind of played into that, or if any at all? Well, there's a long tradition of New England novelists um, writing about, New England storytellers writing about um, the devil coming to torment the sinners and um, give them their just desserts on the sharp end of his pitchfork. <laughs> um, you know, and and... In in a lot of New England fiction, um, you know, Old Harry, the devil, um, is, uh, is sometimes looked at as a very wry and amusing figure who gives people what they have coming to them. Right. Which which is interesting because that doesn't make him fully evil. Um, you know, um, that makes him um, almost heroic. You know, he's a guy who reveals the hypocrites. Right. And... Um, punishes people who do wicked things while pretending to be the good guy. Um, and um, I, thought, I thought that was interesting. I thought, you know, when you look at the devil, he's almost a superhero. I mean, he's got a costume. He's usually in a red cape. He's got a super weapon. You know, he's got Thor has his hammer. The devil has his pitchfork. You know, he's got a cool look with the horns and stuff. And he could be one of the Avengers. You know, Sam Jackson could recruit him for the Avengers. He totally fits in. <laughs> yeah, I come from the deep south. They probably wouldn't go for that. Down <laughs> now, um... No, but every child, every child, don't, regardless of where they grew, grew up, loves to hear stories about the wicked being punished by the devil. Sure. You know, they love those punishment. Children... Children love to watch other children get in trouble and be punished for it. And I think that when we grow up as adults, we don't change that much. And we love to see the devil come for the sinners and give them what they have coming to them. Um, in terms of the film itself, um, how involved in the pre-production process were you? I looked at several drafts of the screenplay that okay. Keith Bunin wrote. I, you know, I, I mean, it was good to start with, and I made some suggestions, and, it, and, and he wound up with something really wonderful. I think, you know, I think my goal was to help where I could and stay out of the way the rest of the time. Um, you know, I visited the set, and I loved it, but it wasn't like, you know, I was there to watch, not to talk. Um, I had some suggestions at, when it was in screenplay form, and I had some suggestions later um, when they were editing it and putting it together. But these guys are great at their work, you know, and, and they knew what they wanted to do, and they did a really terrific job. They didn't need a little love from me. Did uh, Keith make any choices in the screenplay that you were particularly fond of that changed the material? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, there's one character who is um, the bad guy in the, in the book. Um, and in the book, this figure... Um, is a sort of a, your basic garden variety sociopath, right. um, very much like Ted Bundy or like the BTK killer. Um, in the film, that figure is presented as just one of the guys, as a sort of ordinary man who just just isn't used to hearing no. 
you know, and I thought that was much more daring and a lot more frightening, you know, the suggestion that, um, um, you know, your closest buddy could be this person, and you don't think they could be, but they, they could be if, if, you know, if under the right circumstances. Um, and, I mean, I also think that the bad guy, and I'm trying to avoid giving him away, right. but I also think in a weird way um, the bad guy wound up being a little bit like the Santa Barbara killer, you know, and I find that very chilling because, of course, they made the film well before that happened. And, and, but I think a lot of his thought process seems like the thought process that was revealed after that guy went on his rampage, you know, what we heard about. And that, that I find especially chilling. And that's all Keith. You know, Keith, that's what, that's, you know, Keith Bunin created that character and, and, and then a terrific actor um, flushed him out. Well, thank you, Joe. I can't wait to see it again in October. All right, all right. I love to hear it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Last but certainly not least are a whole slew of people involved in the new Constantine TV series. You'll hear from David Goyer, who's co-producer on the show, as well as Daniel Cerrone, the other co-producer, Matt Ryan, who plays John Constantine, Charles Halford playing Chaz, Harold Perrineau playing Manny, and Angelica Celaya playing Zed. Enjoy. We've seen that in the pilot that it's got quite a kind of a tense, a dark tone about it. What can we expect from the rest of the series and the show going forward? Pretty light, frothy, romantic comedy, I <laughs> yes. would say. Um, you know, ballroom dancing. Yeah. It's a, no, I mean, more of the same. Uh, it, I mean, it's a... What's fun about the show is it's, it's scary and edgy. NBC is telling us to lean into it. They like shades of gray. They like moral ambiguity. They want shocking. They want horrifying. But at the same time, John Constantine himself is really funny. Um, so more more of the same. I, I, David, I will say, Dave and I have both written network shows before, and we're... At a certain point in your career, you start self-censoring because you know the notes that you get. And to NBC's credit, they, they're they getting scripts and they're like, you guys, boot garbage. Go like, for go it. Go edge kill that guy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> let's know. They want it. Yeah. You know, our two exec... I mean, look, the president of uh, NBC was the president of Showtime uh, uh, when I was a writer on Dexter, and as is our development executive who awarded the series, and they want that anti-hero. They want the darkness. They want to bring cable television to... Uh, but more importantly, they know that Hellblazer is like this really cutting-edge, hardcore comic book, and they're very aware of, you know, not wanting to water it down. I mean, they they want us to be truthful to the source source material. Yes, we've always he's, he's, he drinks, he smokes, the vices are all there. Yes. Like in he's space. He's just a fucked up guy who's trying to figure out how to get his life back. He's exactly an incredibly right. screwed up guy. And he's not always a nice guy. And exactly. it's fun. He will throw anybody under the bus, including his own friends. Yes. It's a running joke in the comic book that, you know, he, there's a trail of carnage behind him. He is not a white knight. Anybody who trusts him ends up dead. And you're going to see that in the early episodes of... Of, of our series, we yep. remain very true to that. So what's his appeal then? He's got all these dark it, things. His appeal because he's not—he's not the hero you fantasize about and dream about. He's the hero we deserve. And 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 you know we we are not perfect people. We have foibles. We have addictions. We have failings, and so does he. But I think sometimes it's more interesting to see an imperfect person struggle and succeed than it is to see a perfect person struggle and one succeed. Of the, one of the best hallmarks of the comic book is that he, he does fall on his face often. And he, all, he fails. Mass, more than sometimes. anything else, more than he's a magician, more than he's a scrapper, more than he's a con man, he's just a master of improv. Like, so no matter what happens, and it frequently goes mishaps, wrong. Yeah. yeah, occur, 
he always finds a way out of it. And that's that's the fun of it. And he's he's very self-effacing along the way, and he'll make fun of himself and others. So I think that's what makes him so enjoyable. In terms of characters, which are the characters you kind of most looking forward to bringing in from the Hellblazer world? And what about outside that world into the show as well? We've, uh, well, we've indicated in the pilot, you see this Dr. Fate helmet that, that we have access to sort of the greater occult DC universe and, and we've indicated within the first few episodes we'll be introducing some other characters that are beyond just the immediate Hellblazer cast and if we get lucky enough in the first season maybe a few more we just want to be slow about it we don't want it to be guest star of the week and the intent is if we're rolling out some of these other characters that they, be, they stick around and be recurring characters and the audience can really dig into them as for the supporting Hellblazer cast, lots of them. Yeah, I'll say what I'm most excited about in our first season is meeting the entire Newcastle crew, who over the course of the full season, if we get a full season, you will meet. You know, that's a seminal event in John Constantine's life, is the loss of uh, a girl's soul that's on him. And we're going to meet every one of those members and see how it affected them individually. And then toward the end of the season, he's going to need to call them all back and rely on them sort of to get out of our first season. And pop a midnight. Yeah, and pop a midnight. He'll be showing up in a few episodes. It's a a faithful interpretation of the character. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Look at your stickers. Oh. I got my stickers. Table on. Nice. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. All right. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. Name? Uh, Charles Halford. Charles, tell us a little bit about the character you're playing on Constantine. Uh, I play Chaz, which is John's uh, best and oldest and longest surviving friend, which is more than most of his friends can say. Uh, he's a wingman. He's 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 a bit of the muscle, and he uh, you know he keeps John to task. John is a a reluctant hero, and uh, and I think Chaz is sort of like constantly prodding him along because he knows that he's the man for the job. So how much do you know about this world that you have a part, and like what kind of stuff out of that world if you kind of um, I'm, I'm looking forward to bringing as much of that to screen as possible. Um, I was a fan of the comic books uh, when I was a child, although they were naughty comics, you know, so I, I was lucky to get my hands on them um, at, at the time. And, and um, when, when all of this came about, uh, I mean, when we were shooting the pilot, the first thing I did was go to the comic book store and buy up every Hellblazer comic I could. and and uh, you fell in love all over again. And if I'm not reading, you know, next week's script, then, then I'm reading a Hellblazer comic. You know, I'm, I'm just slowly working my way through the whole catalog and enjoying every page of it. What do you like the most about it? Uh, I mean, I think just the attitude. I mean, I'm an old punk rocker, you know. Like, I grew up, I grew up kind of, uh, you know, just with a stiff middle finger. And I think that, uh, and I think that, that, that attitude... Uh, is and, and a lot of like just the questions it poses, you know, and, and the socio commentary and this kind of stuff. There's, there's, a, there's a lot to love about it, and uh, and I just find them very agreeable to my sensibilities, and I, I think I'm not alone in that. <laughs> you said that you, you described uh, Chaz's role, mm-hmm. how do you view him as a person? What kind of person is? I think he's a deep soul. I mean, obviously he's he's seen a lot, he's experienced a lot, and it's, it's caused him to question a lot. Um, I mean, just. You know, seeing how you know Constantine is—he's reckless. He's a reckless hero, Constantine, and, and to support that, you know, you have to 
stomach a lot. And I think that uh, I think he's a, a deeply compassionate person, um, which is which is which is nice in contrast to sort of Constantine's. Well, sometimes it, it appears that he has a lack of compassion, but he's serving this higher higher kind of calling. And I think that they have that in common. Um, so, so he, he's he's seen a lot. He's very seasoned, um, and he's been through a lot. But but at the end of the day, I think that he's a he's a deep feeling kind of and a dear friend to Constantine. I don't think there's anything less, um, there's, there's anything um, not genuine about that relationship. But it's been hard to be Constantine's friend. Very hard. <laughs> Very hard. He's a total bastard. Give me. Exactly. <laughs> um, Does that come across in the show itself? Is yeah, and I think... heartless bastard he really is? Sure, and I think that, I think that we're, um, you know, as, as, as it goes on, we explore more and more of that. Um, I mean, he makes some tough calls. That, uh, he does a lot of it without even making the call. He just kind of like, you know, oh, you know, in order for this to work, you have to die. And, and he goes about that. But I don't, I don't think that, that that bounces off Chaz. Like it, I mean, Chaz notices all of that. And, he, and again, he holds Constantine to task, you know. Uh, he, he doesn't take for granted that, like, in, in the pilot, which I'm assuming you all checked out, um, I mean, you know, Liv leads to, to kind of give us guidance, and, and, and John's just, you know, willy nilly walking away, and, 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 and Chaz is kind of there saying, look, you know, this girl bled, like, we owe it to her to kind of to do this stuff, and, and you know, Constantine just wants to be hung over and not do it, and he's like, no, you gotta do this, <laughs> you know, you have to do this. So, Matt, as an actor, mm -hmm. uh, where did you find your uh, voice for John Constantine? My voice for him, what actually, what the, 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 the which, which voice? Your, your, your personality for John oh, Constantine. Well, the comics, man, I mean, yeah, I started reading them. I haven't read them all yet, there's, there's a lot of them, but uh, the, I just started reading them and using the source material, and then I've got this, this thick, moleskin book of just all my John Constantine stuff with images and, like, uh, you know, little different lines that I use. And, from the comics and stuff, and just gleaning as much as I can from from the source material, you know. Were you aware of the character at all before? It's funny. Um, I've been told for years and years by a friend of mine who was uh, a big comic book fan. He's got his own comic book company now called um, Improper Books, and they got some good stuff. And uh, he'd been telling me for years, John Constantine's my favorite, you know, uh, comic book character, the Hellblazer stuff, and. Um, and then when I, when I got the audition, he was like, <laughs> sat me down, man, and took me through the ringer. He was just like, right, okay, it's got to be like this. And uh, so, yeah, he's, he's like my, my worst critic. Did you have to work on the accent, though? Because you are... My accent's different, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's, no, a lot of people... That's been, like, the fandom's first, like... Yeah, a lot of people have been saying that I'm using my own accent. I'm not using my own accent, you know. The, the funny thing is, Liverpool is right next door to Wales. Yeah. It's like, literally, you know... It's, it's, but, um, you know, the thing is, uh, I thought about doing a full-on Liverpudlian accent, but you'd have to put subtitles on it for American yeah. television. You would for a full-on Welsh accent as well. And so, we, you know, I kind of came, came up with the idea that, you know, he's from Liverpool. Like, I'm from Wales, but then I left, I left Wales when I was 19, and then I've travelled. So my accent isn't as thick as it would be if I was still living in Wales. So I, I applied that to John. It's like he, 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 was, he was born in Liverpool, he was brought up there, but then he moved away. So, so we've taken the basis of that accent and the vowel sounds and the consonants and then just flattened it out. And then some of the vowel sounds are actually similar to, to the Welsh vowel sounds because they're right next door to each other anyway. So it's kind of, it's kind of a more accessible kind of um, uh, travelled accent. 
how tough it was the grueling was the audition process? It was it was quite tough, man. Yeah, I was doing a play in London and um, uh, and I was I was doing a Shakespeare play, uh, Henry V in London. I had long hair and a big beard, and when I did my first tape for it, they uh, they were just like, yeah. Daniel and David really liked me, but then some other people were like, I don't see it because of the beard. And so I went through this whole process, had to wait for the play to finish, and then, and then flew over to LA, chopped all my hair off, shaved the beard, and, and uh, I went from there. So, which character you enjoyed interacting with most on screen? Um, I'd say Manny. Manny, because they've got this great, they're, they're both kind of manipulators, you know, and they're both kind of trying to get one up on each other all the time but there's also a mutual respect for each other so there's this kind of dance this toe-to-toe dance that they're doing all the time they're, they're uneasy allies you know and, and I think that makes for a really interesting dynamic and interesting kind of conflict between the two of them well, well um, I play a character Manny he's an angel so he's not, he's not a person at all he's not, he's not human he is, um, he's an angel however uh, you think about that uh, he is, uh, he's there to, uh, so Manny was created because he doesn't live in the, uh, in Constantine's world, in the comics. Manny's created specifically for our show because the writers want to push Constantine in a direction. And so, and I'm really excited to be part of that, you know, building of this character that, that wasn't there before, so adding to the lore of, of Constantine. And so, yeah, Manny's there to, uh, to do that. He's, he's, He's going to guide Constantine <laughs> as much as you can guide him. And, right. Yeah, and, and it's not as nice as it sounds. <laughs> He's going to guide him, though. <laughs> it's kind of like the devil with the sidekick of an angel. The devil with the sidekick of an angel. You mean Constantine's the devil yeah. and I'm the sidekick exactly. of an angel? The yeah. devil soul thing. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I, I like Constantine. I don't actually think he's a devil. I... He's an asshole, uh, but I don't think he's a devil. Like you know, because I, mean? I think at the end of the day, what he wants is a is a good thing. I think how he gets it is funny, and I think that that, that makes Manny perfect for him because Manny wants something too, and how he gets it, you might, you might not like it, but he's gonna get it. So, and I think you know those two entities, those two energies, are gonna be really interesting for our story as we move forward. Uh, they're digital. I don't know if I'm getting real ones. I certainly hope I get real ones so that I can go home once in a while. And when my wife says, take out the garbage, I'm like, I got wings. I'm not taking out garbage. I try anything. anything. Fly, and fly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. But uh, hopefully he doesn't. And he has these really interesting eyes, Manny does. And they're, uh, it's, it's kind of cool. So we just want to make him look other than human. He, he shouldn't look exactly human. But a little, and so and he takes all the bodies, right? Is that, he is that he does. He sort of possesses he uh, possesses space. He, you know, yes, he takes all the bodies. That's, oh, that's yes. easy way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you, yeah, yeah. Thank you, you Harold. It's a whole detailed thing. But you know what? He takes all the bodies. We keep talking about it. Give us since we haven't seen the show yet. Give us some feeling about the and what she's all about and how you view it. Well, Zed is, um, she comes from Hellblazer Comics and uh, she, you know, plays into a story that she's a sensitive, so she basically can, you know, touch an object, like your iPhone, and uh, know exactly where you've been or can locate you. She's like a GPS, right? She's like, okay, he's right here or he's going to feel this 
or she can touch someone and know exactly what they're going through, what's in their mind, what they're trying to hide. And this is where it comes interesting because Constantine wants to hide all that from everybody. And the only one he can hide it from is that. But as a person, what kind of character is she? She's a survivor. She's, she's a survivor. She's running away from things. She's, she's, she's getting bombarded by so many images, by all these visions she's getting in her head. She's trying to find out who she is. So she's, you know, she's trying to survive in a world that she doesn't fit in. Because who gets images? Who gets bombarded by, by visions? That you can speak out loud and admit it, you know, right. to people like in a group like this. You can. You don't even think you're a weirdo, so she stays quiet. Well, but Constantine she can admit it. Well, Constantine knows there's something yeah. up. Yeah. Well, what's her relationship like with John? John, it's um, it's a little push and pull. It's a push and pull, definitely, and they both know they need each other. They don't want to admit it. They don't want to admit they need each other. All right. How much did you know about this world before you signed up? Well, one thing is, is that a lot of subjects we talk about in the in this season is um, subjects that I grew up in Southern Arizona, and with you know, there's like so many like um, weird things going on in the desert and stuff. So you, you grow up with like you know. Native American, you know, visions and traditions and all that, and so it's a little, you know, mysterious. And then I, I come into this world of, of the comics that I honestly I've never been a part of, but in some odd way it ties in. It's, it's did they hand you a stack of comic books uh, when you were cast? Or? I was yes, I, I was deeply pleased that DC Comics gave me my my uh, library card. <laughs> I'm like, here you go. What comics do you want? So I honestly, I'm so fortunate to be like, okay, I want to read this comic. No, no, I want to read that one. So yeah, I, I'm doing my homework and very happy to do it. So Constantine's a big Hellblazer. Yeah, it's huge. It, it, it's a lot to digest. So are you, are you still, how, how oh, it's continuous you reading. Yeah, it's continuous reading, 15. and the characters change, and and personality traits change and morph into something else. So you have to continuously go back and see where do I want to pull. Yeah. It's not something you just read once and you're like, oh, fine, I know what exactly my character is. It's Especially a little bit more with Z, there's a lot of. Yeah. She and changes, she changes, she changes and physically changes. So that does it for this episode and all of our awesome Comic-Con interviews. We really hope you liked them. There's tons of other Comic-Con news, if you haven't caught up, that we've been covering on the site for the last week or so, so make sure to check out all that as well. If you like the stuff we do and you want to support GeekRex, the best way to do that is to use our Amazon portal link. Uh, if you go to our website, there's in the top right corner, there's an Amazon link there. That'll take you just to Amazon. It'll look like it normally does, but any money you spend after using that link will partially go to us. So it'll help us out a lot, and we always really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for listening, and see you next week.